Aliens and flying saucers. Hey, 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 welcome to the 44th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the wonderful MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever I'm thinking of. And today, I'm stepping outside of the norm a little bit with my latest guest. Jane McManus was one of ESPN's truly exceptional NFL writers and reporters, until she was laid off in a very public manner. And I've been thinking a lot about this. What is it to be laid off in journalism? What do you do? Where do you go? How do you handle it? So Jane and I are going to discuss this as well as our old employer's seeming unwillingness to address touchy issues in sports, and also Jane's time covering Rex Ryan and the New York Jets. It's genuinely enlightening stuff, and it's right now on Two Writers, Slinging Yang. Okay, Jane, first of all, thank you for joining me. You are, we're making history here, because while you are not the first person to do this podcast from England, you are the first American to do this podcast from England. So I think that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud to have that distinction. So it's interesting. I have a story about you in front of me and it's from the patch in Westchester. I didn't even know the patch still <laughs> exists, to be honest. And I'm sure you saw it. It's like the headline is ESPN layoffs for on-air talent include Westchester's Jane McManus. And I'm thinking proud if I'm you looking at the patch, I'm like, oh, fuck. Great. Like wonderful. <laughs> I, you know, I was just happy to be claimed. I was happy to be yeah, claimed as Westchester's own, you know, yeah. as someone who, who moved to Westchester, you know, in my, in my thirties, uh, you know, it was nice to, to suddenly be Westchester's own Jane McManus. That's really funny. We were talking before you and I have never met in person. And yet I'd say our careers have, have largely paralleled in that we're both in our forties. We're saying mid to late and mm-hmm. both spent a lot of time in New York, both covered sports for a long time both covered sports for national places. You were part of the sort of big heartbreaking, crushing, sad layoff at ESPN last year. And I wonder what are we supposed to do now in this business? You know, like I've been thinking about this all the time because on this podcast, I have a lot of like young 26 year old writers who are super enthused. And then I'll have the 75 year old guy looking back at his career, very happy to look back at the old days. But then there's us. And I feel like I feel a lot older than maybe a 45-year-old guy should feel based on this business. Right. Well, you have to think back. If, if we'd started our careers 20 years earlier, we would now be in prime time of our careers, right? We'd probably, we'd probably be columnists. Uh, we'd be covering a lot of different things. Um, and yet because the media business has changed so much, we kind of got in on the tail end of the good times. We got to see the media business for what it was when we started, but things have completely changed now. Um, and in some ways, you know, I lament that it does, it means that, you know, the, I, look, I've seen, you know, I've seen guys that I came into this business who'd, who'd been sports writers for 20 years, people I looked up to that helped me out, that mentored me in this business and they got kicked out in their fifties and that was it. Mm. No, thank you. No, good luck with your next career. Nothing. And I, I feel like, you know, especially those first waves of layoffs that we all lived through back in the 2000s, 
you know, a lot of them did hit kind of middle-aged men, white men in particular. Like that was the bulk. I felt like they'd throw in, you know, a wild card here or there just so nobody could sue them for age discrimination. But it really was, it felt anyway at the time, very targeted. And, and I saw, you know, a lot of them have to switch careers or even worse, not be able to switch careers, right? Because they were clinging to the idea that they could be a sports writer forever. And that's all they saw themselves as. And so it kind of was a wake up call for me, certainly that even though we're writers, even though we're sports writers, that isn't the whole and sum of who I am. And I have to make sure that I have perspective of that because I really did see it deeply wound people to be forced out of the business just because it's a game of musical chairs and sometimes you lose your seat. So it can't be personal um, in that respect. Um, but, you know, I also think that at the same time that the business kind of is thrusting out some of its experience and its wisdom, and it's even more important that people who are committed to journalism are involved in journalism and don't switch to some sort of PR job. So, you know, I kind of wrestle with those different things, whether it means that the, the mantle is going to have to be carried by young people who are coming to this business because they're cheaper and because they're more likely to be hired. That's fine. And I do, you know, I've, I've been an adjunct professor at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism for the last 10 years or so. So I've gotten to see a lot of really talented young people come in and come through. And it gives me uh, optimism for the future of sports journalism. So that's important. Yeah, but see, here's the thing where I struggle. Well, first of all, I feel like I am lucky in a way that I kind of transitioned to books a decade ago um, because I see what's happening at sports illustrated now, you know, and I see what happened at ESPN where there there's cutbacks after cutbacks after cutbacks. And it is usually people in their forties, fifties, sixties, and to some degree seventies. Um, you know, I had a friend recently say to me, literally, what, where should I apply? What should I be doing? He was, he was about 50 years old. He worked at a newspaper for 30 years he was probably making, I don't know, 100000 He has a kid in college. Another kid is a senior in high school. And I just, I feel like it's an interesting thing that isn't discussed that much in this business. Like, wh where do you go if you're this guy? Like, what, do, what can you possibly do now? You're not going to make a hundred. There's no newspaper that's going to hire you. You can do freelance and get 50 bucks when the uh, whatever tournament comes into town for whatever paper you want to write it for. ESPN isn't going to hire you. Bleacher Board isn't going to hire you. Sports Illustrated is crumbling. Like, what do you, what do you do? Like, what do you do? I think, you, I think you have to have a plan B. I mean, I really do. I think, it, but this is, you know, this is something that kind of seems shocking to us in a way because, you know, we're, we're just old enough to have grown up in the era where you got a job out of college and maybe you stayed there for your entire career and they were invested in your career and they helped train you and they cared about where you ended up. Uh, but that just isn't the way things are anymore. So you've got to be the one who's in charge. And I think it means that you have to broaden your horizons a bit. I mean, you know, you're realistic. You want to, you want to do this. You have to have some sort of niche. Sometimes you have to be a self-starter. I mean, maybe you start your, your own podcast. <laughs> maybe that's what you do. Right. You know, but there are lots of, there are lots of ways to stay involved. I don't, I don't know that you, you know, there are a few places where you can land, make a different, decent living, but those jobs are not security. And then I think you have to, realize that maybe you don't make that much money anymore. And, and the other thing is, I think maybe you realize that you have to try to do something different if you can, a mid-career switch, at least have an eye on what your backup plan is. I thought the thing that was heartbreaking, it almost felt like uh, acid rain falling down, was after, whenever there's a layoff, be it ESPN or SI or wherever, Yahoo, 
Twitter will be overwhelmed by recently laid off journalists tweeting out, excited to start the next stage of my career, excited to start the, thrilled to start the next stage, grateful to ESPN, but excited to start the next stage. And I always, I kept viewing that truly as a euphemism for what the hell am I supposed to do now? I, I almost keep repeating it because I feel like people just aren't really talking about this. It's like, there's a million people out there. A lot of like, I've been writing for the athletic and right. Which, I by get, the way, has hired you, a lot of really good people who have a lot of experience. I agree with you a hundred percent, but they can't hire everyone. And I keep getting emails from people, tons of people. I don't even, I just write a column there. It's all I do, but keep getting emails from people. Hey, who do you know at the athletic? Hey, can you help me up at the athletic? And I feel like people view the athletic almost in a way as the last hope for writing. People always say, I know you're going to land on your feet. You're so good that I know whatever comes next for you is going to be fantastic. And right. of course, we want to kind of put a silver lining, on it, right? Like, well, you know, one door closes, another opens. But I don't think that another door is going to open for a lot of people. And that might be me, too. Who knows? But it, it is like we just want to pretend that there's the old media environment where where good people and talent does get picked up because I've seen people who have a ton of talent who are not working and who may not work again. And it's a shame because you do have, you have so much experience lost. You have so much wisdom. You have so much, um, you know, people who know so much uh, going back years and years, you just don't have that same continuity with when everybody who's covering something is kind of new to the beat or young or fresh. And there's an advantage to that as well. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, you need a mix of people covering. Okay. But let me ask you this, Jane, because I think about this a lot. You're ESPN and you can have Jane McManus, who's been covering football for a very long time. Um, you can have her writing about the NFL, or you could have 22 year old guy out of Syracuse covering the NFL. And the 22 year old guy out of Syracuse is going to start at 38,000 and you know, whatever Jane is making a hundred something or whatever we think. So we, you and I veteran journalists will say, well, you know, experience and blah, blah, blah. And it matters. I'm not sure it does. Like, I'm not sure the ESPN reader is going to stop reading ESPN because a 22 year old isn't nearly as good or as knowledgeable as you are. Like, I'm not sure the connection is there that we actually think is there. Well, they want to hire, and I think most outlets want to hire for like a beat writing job. Like they want somebody who can churn out the copy because unlike mm -hmm. when we were coming in the business, it's now somebody's going to write seven blogs a day. They're going to cover every breaking story. It's going to be that one person and they're just going to have to eat and sleep and live that beat. And it, it's got to be volume, right? Because they need three graphs to put on the front page to do this thing. They need four graphs to go along with some piece of video that they're putting and they need you to go on the radio and you've got six different affiliates and they all want, you know, you've got a breaking story and those six different affiliates all need you for five, 10 minutes. So it's a different kind of business now. Whereas, you know, I still remember my first story was filed on a candy, you know, a Radio Shack candy, which when you could see three lines of text at a time, there was no kind of going back and checking, right? And I remember taking a phone cord and putting the phone cord literally in the wall. You know, once, once 11 o'clock came and, and, you know, the paper went to, to press, I mean, that was your day. You know, even if something broke, you just had to know about it so you could write about it for the next day. There was no, you know, there was no web to feed. There was nothing like that. So, so I think, you know, it does help in some ways 
if I'm in a, if I'm a media organization to have somebody who's younger, who's kind of a digital native and, you know, a lot. And the other thing is I know a lot of people who adapted and, and can churn out the copy as well, who are much older, but those, they, for whatever reason, people just aren't considered for that job anymore. They want somebody who's young and hungry. Yeah. I think the experience part becomes valuable, not necessarily for a beat writer, but when you're hiring more, you know, somebody's doing a takeout, somebody who's a columnist, somebody's a feature writer, that kind of thing. That's when you want to have somebody who has that experience. Right. But I'm saying to you, Jane, do you think you can see a correlation between readership and success of a website? I'm talking financial success of a website and whether the person writing the takeout knows the history of the Jets quarterback, you know, going back to had Jets quarterbacks, going back to Richard Todd, or again, it's a 22 year old. Like I know you and I, see the difference and we know the difference and we care about the difference deeply but should espn care about it like is there an actual correlation between the success of their website and their network and the knowledge base of their employees i would argue that there is because i think from my experience when you know when i was a beat writer your readers were incredibly loyal like if you had somebody who really liked you and followed you and felt like you were breaking news and that you were adding depth, that really did translate to clicks. And I mean, I don't know that, you know, the thing about ESPN is it just might be so big and it's getting so many clicks from so many different places. But let's say you're the athletic. I mean, that can make a real difference in drawing people to your site and getting them to pony up the money for the subscription. I think that could, that's where that kind of thing could make a huge difference. I'm going to ask you a weird question. It's kind of blunt. You got laid off and you got laid off in a relatively public manner, which is, Look, ESPN's doing all this, all these layoffs today. And look, it's him and her and her and her. What is that like to go through? Like, it's one thing to get laid off. It's another thing to get laid off and everyone knows you got laid off. Yeah. I mean, it sucks getting laid off. I mean, it really does. My first thing when I got the call that morning from John Kozner, who also is no longer at ESPN, but he was the one who called me and said, you know, we're, you know, we're not, we're, we're laying off a bunch of people starting today and, and you're, you're there. And um, my first question was, I had these two stories that, it, that I'd worked on for a long time. And I was like, hey, you know, these, these two stories are really important to me. The most important thing to me right now is to find out whether or not these two stories are still going to run. So he was like, I'll get back to you. And he checked in and sure enough, the stories ran. And I kind of felt like with that, I could kind of say, okay, you know, I had a bit of closure. Um, thing is, though. I always felt like it was a possibility that I could lose my job knowing that there were layoffs coming. I never felt like I was immune from that possibility. I also looked around me and I saw the names of the people, you know, people that I know, people that I respect who were also laid off and kind of felt like I was in some pretty good company. You know, a lot of people that I respect, a lot of people who did a good job. So it was hard to feel like it was super personal. Again, you know, and I, I've been, the thing is, I worked at a Gannett paper, the journal news for the first 10 years of my career. And that's when the layoffs started. And, you know, and I kind of, I took a buyout in 2009 because there was another round of layoffs coming. And I figured I could probably in that round too. And they were offering a pretty decent amount, you know, in terms of relatively speaking. Um, so I felt like that was kind of the time to get out. And, and, you know, maybe, cause I, I don't know. I don't feel like what happened though, when I look back on it. I don't feel like it's a great tragedy, either personally or professionally. Um, I feel like it came at the right time. And just for me, personally, it, it, I mean, I know this is going to sound like dumb spin, and I am not a glass half full person. <laughs> I'm a glass <laughs> half empty person. But it came at right. the right time for me, and the package that I got when I left 
made it so that I could do something that I would never have gotten a chance to do. And I do feel like, you know, I'm, I still get, I still get a lot of calls about things that I might want to do um, once my deal is completely done with ESPN. So I do feel like there's, there's life in my career left. What are you doing in England? What am I doing in England? So the, I, so the day the layoff happened, um, I looked at my husband and and I was like, we've always wanted to do something big. We've always wanted to live overseas. What can we do? Where can we go? Like, where can we put our kids in school? We have two teenage daughters and he's a teacher. And so he got hooked up with a, um, search form that matches up teachers in the U S with schools abroad. And so we live in London now and our kids go to a, to a private all girls school where they wear uniforms and they have houses like Harry Potter. <laughs> and it's kind of amazing. I, I do, you know, I do some writing, but I've also done a lot of traveling. Like, you know, the traveling is really inexpensive here. And so I've been to Milan and Sweden and Rome and Paris and Venice all in the last couple of months. And I kind of, you know, I needed a sabbatical because I'd been covering some really intense things and it had been draining. And there'd been less and less support for it at ESPN too. So it was frustrating. And so this really has offered me an opportunity to kind of get back to the drawing board. What am I passionate about? What do I want to do? Where do I see my career going? And get a fresh start. So we moved to California three years ago from New York, just because almost like the same way, just for the hell of it. We always wanted, I always wanted to live in California. We just decided, screw it. We're moving to California. And we did. (laughs) But when I told my daughter, who was uh, a, uh, at the time she was heading into sixth grade. She just cried and cried and cried and cried oh, and wouldn't leave a room. So when you tell your kids, Hey kids, we're moving to a different country. What's the reaction? So my older daughter was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I won't do it. <laughs> she didn't cry, but she was, she was completely firm. My younger daughter was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's do something interesting. And I, I don't know if she said that because she really wanted to do it or just because she says the opposite of her older sister all the time. Like, you know, they pick different corners and they just go to them and whatever. But then my older one, she started warming up to the idea. And by the time we picked London, she was pretty excited about it. So had a ton of buy-in. It was actually, it was really great because my husband and the kids kind of were like, that's great. Like I had a non-compete clause. I couldn't work. I just couldn't imagine sitting in the house in New York, not being able to work in New York. How many times in life do you get a restart? Do you get like a sabbatical? You just don't really get it all that often. Feel sometimes that we are so obsessed with the next byline, the next thing that we're chasing, the next thing that we're doing that we never, I mean, you know, the craft of writing is a contemplative craft. Like it's not about just doing and doing and doing and doing. Sometimes I think, you know, you need to fill up, right? You can't just be emptying and emptying and emptying. You have to also take time to kind of reflect and to think. And a lot of the stuff I've been thinking about or talking about or experiencing or doing have nothing to do with sports. And I think that's really important that we remain well-rounded people, especially if you're a writer, because otherwise you get stuck, you get really niche. And I I think you get too much confidence in this narrow thing that you're doing and you're not growing as a writer and as a person. Did you at all, at all, have to get over the sort of ego adjustment of not being Jane McManus from ESPN? (laughs) I, you know, I didn't. I I mean, I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I've always been somebody who, you know, maybe it's from seeing like these guys that I really trusted and respect and helped me out of my career who got, you know, booted out of their jobs and had to reevaluate and had thought about themselves that way. But I always thought that's not, you know, I'm not just a sports writer. I also think, you know, 
there could be, this is just my thinking, but I think it's different for women because I think we wear a lot of different hats in our lives, right? Like, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a, you know, I'm a wife, I'm a sports writer, I'm a college professor. I was a roller derby player. Like there are a lot of different things that I do in my life. And to just kind of distill that down to the one thing would not feel right to me. It's just, it doesn't feel like who I am. We were, we were trading DMs and um, you wrote something and it really hit me because I, I, I feel it a million times over. You said, you know, number one, you were covering a lot of abuse and violence and you were seeing a lot of sort of apathy last year and ESPN didn't really seem interested in sort of the coverage you were pitching. And you mentioned an NFL meeting, pitching the idea of, you know, Zeke Elliott and, you know, having an editor basically kind of smack that down. And I, I feel like. Good analogy, by the way. Good analogy for the DV coverage. I know. I I love it when those, those inadvertently come up and you're always like, ah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. My bad. Um, You know what I mean though? (laughs) Yeah, Um, absolutely. Well, so that's right. And I, I, the way I looked at this story was that it wasn't just a, a one day story, right? Like I wanted to follow the NFL through and see what they were doing, how they were adjusting, what the long-term goals were, whether they were matching up to that, like in terms of their accountability and conduct policy, did it match what they said they were going to do when they were faced with a crisis in 2014 after the Ray Rice video emerged? It's not the only story that I ever covered, but I felt like I'd done a lot of work on it and had a lot of good sources in it. So I wanted to cover, there were some things that they were doing in terms of like training women to be coaches, getting more women involved, wrote a lot of stories about, you know, the first referee who was, you know, working for the NFL and the first coaches who were women who were working for the NFL. And and I kind of wanted to keep following up with that. And I just, I felt like there was a little bit less, I think, you know, particularly at ESPNW, I think there was a question about whether or not they wanted to be the domestic violence and accountability organ, you know, of ESPN. And and that didn't necessarily feel right to them. So that, that was a bit of an issue, but yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I'd been hearing that, that Zeke Elliott was going to get a pretty long-term suspension and the meeting was last spring before the layoff. And I, we were having an NFL writers meeting and somebody said, you know, does anybody have any ideas? And we were kind of going through ideas. And I said, well, I think we should maybe just do something, get ahead of the Zeke Elliott suspension and do some reporting to find out, you know, what actually happened there. And, you know, an editor was just like, look, there's nothing that's going to happen with that. I've heard there's nothing to that, you know, next idea. So, and, you know, that told me a lot, right? It told me that, you know, at least, you know, with one person, there wasn't a lot of faith in what I was doing as a writer, which is always a tough thing to kind of feel, right? When you're covering something and when you're reporting something and you feel you have, you know, something that would be news. And, and ultimately, Zeke Elliott did get a pretty long suspension. And so my, the reporting I'd done had been right. Um, but that didn't happen until after I was laid off. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what the reaction in house was. But, you know, that kind of just gave me an indicator. And, you know, and that's, that's tough in a couple of different ways because I think that reporting on domestic violence, sexual assault, harassment, all of those things, it's important that that's part of the coverage. Um, it's also personally difficult to cover because you talk to people who have gone through some terrible things. And it's, it doesn't define necessarily who they are, but you do hear about you know, very difficult nights, like the abuse and humiliation that people received people that you know then and that you you know sources that you get to know and that you care about and and so taking all of that in and hearing over and over about it it does take a cumulative toll and to 
to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be, I'll be the one of the ones that reports this story and really keeps an eye on it because I feel like it's important for a news organization that this is covered and covered with the respect and dignity that deserves. And then to, to see kind of the apathy. And I think part of it has to do with, um, and, and ESPN covers a lot of very difficult stories. Don't get me wrong. So it's not like I was the only one pitching covering something that was uh, not a rah-rah story. But I do think there's, at a lot of news organizations, there is this emphasis on happy coverage, especially in sports, treating it like it's fun. Hey, you know, we're all wearing foam fingers while we're typing with our other hand um, here in the press box. And and I think that does our profession a disservice because, you know, we are not just fans of the game and happen to be sports writers because we're fans. We're, we're reporters and we're journalists. And we need to cover sports with the same kind of seriousness that, you know, a medical writer covers, you know, the healthcare profession. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my nephew, Jordan Williams. So, uh, Jordan, you're a high school senior, right? Yeah. And you're going to college next year, right? Yep. So how many USFL jerseys do you own? What do you mean? I mean, you're going to be walking around NYU trying to look cool. And nothing's more important than that first impression. So you have to look dope, fresh, jiggy, jiggy, piggy, wiggy. And nothing's on fleeky like a USFL jersey from 503 Sports. I literally don't know what you're talking about. USFL jerseys, spring football, Chuck Fusina, on fleeky. Okay, I'm leaving now. Oh, okay. You know what? Youth is waste on the young. 503 Sports is all about throwback and it has it all. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State. Or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning an Archie Griffin Jacksonville Bulls jersey, well, dreams come true. The merch at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So don't be like Jordan Williams. Go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. Do you think it's weird that we cover a sport? I'm talking about football and boxing. We'll talk football and boxing. That we cover these sports with such sort of fanfare and entertainment. And the people involved in many cases are killing themselves. And the 24 year old defensive back has no idea or doesn't seem to care that 20 years from now, he's not going to be able to remember his kid's name or he's not going to be able to walk or in boxing that these guys are taking repeated punches to the head. They're rattling their brains every time they get hit. Um, and a lot of our coverage, most of our coverage is great tackle by so-and-so or that knockout punch was amazing or blah, blah, blah. Isn't that a little fucked up? <laughs> yes. It's terribly fucked up. Well, you know, I, th- I think about it too. Cause like I'll, a lot of times when I'm watching a game, I will watch the stuff that's happening away from where the ball is. And if you look at the line of scrimmage, like guys are banging their heads into each other on every play. If you really listen on the, and you know, on the, on the broadcast, you hear the crunch of those helmets against other helmets. It's sure. not just when a runner has a ball, you know, it is also everything that is happening around them. And, and, you know, there are impacts that we hear and that we see and that go unremarked upon. And those are the ones that are going to be devastating. I look at it that way. Yeah, I see that. Not every defensive back is going to have that issue, though. It's, it's kind of like the sure. lottery. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But the sure. other thing that I think about is that, you know, I played roller derby for many years, which is a full contact sport. I saw, I saw many of my teammates sustain concussions, like, while I was, you know, playing with them in a game. So I, I understand also, I think, just from a participatory level, though, how fun it is, how fun it is 
to play a full contact sport and to slam into somebody. I mean, mm -hmm. there is a visceral pleasure with that um, that I think we as human beings feel when we watch football. So, so you know, there has to be a way. I wrestle with those two things a lot, right? Because there, I got no greater joy than like I can still remember the time I slammed into this girl and she fell. She, I just knocked her completely down, and then I had to pick up my skate so that I didn't literally run her over. You know, so I had to pick up my skate over her. I can still remember the look on her face as I did that. And so I really, so even though I feel like, yeah, this is terrible that this happens, I also feel like there's just this, like human nature is also though sometimes to put your body on the line and to, to feel, I mean, you feel alive, right? Like you feel alive. The problem is that the NFL is exploiting a lot of players without giving them, you know, hasn't given them the information that it had. It is ignored information of science. The other thing is there's got to be a way to get to keep right what we what what I've personally loved about playing a contact sport in the game, but mitigate the the head impact that's involved. Mm -hmm. And I've heard right. player after player say like, you know, like, oh, I'd rather them go for my knees or I'd rather they go for my head than for my knees, because if you take out my knee, I can't play the game anymore. I, I get that, but I don't think that should be the NFL's view. The NFL can't. The NFL is preying on the on the. Their advantage is that these guys are young and dumb and youth is wasted on the young. I don't mean dumb as an unintelligent, I mean uninformed sort of life. And youth is truly youth is wasted on the young. And I always think you see it with, you know, Smith signed a seven year, $150 million deal, none of which is guaranteed. And the guy they know, the guy can go home and he can brag to his friends and it'll be the headline and whatever, the Houston Chronicle and ESPN.com, seven year, $153 million. I just feel like a lot of times they're playing to the egos of their participants. You know, like it's not really a $153 million deal if the money isn't guaranteed. Wearing a helmet doesn't right. make you safe. Even all the safety measures now, like the bottom line is there's only so much you can do to make football a safe game. There's only so much you can do. It is what it is. It's a game where people get hit. Right. That's absolutely true. But I think there are, there are also, well, there, there have got to be other ways that they can look at the game. You know, there, there are a number of different things that you could do, I think, that would make it a little bit easier. But there is no easy answer. And, yeah. and I think that's part of what we have to wrestle with. But I think, you know, if, like, so I, I was in the Colise I was at the Coliseum in Rome recently. And when you look at the Coliseum in Rome, it is almost exactly like a modern stadium <laughs> stripped away of all the, you know, the exterior and the edifice. But, but the way that it's set up, right, where you have the, the rich people would be sitting close to the action. Um, and then as you went up, it was the seats were cheaper and farther away and less and less glamorous. As human beings, we have this pull toward this thing. And what was happening in the Coliseum was much more gruesome than a football game. Much more gruesome. There, you know, they, they, they had places underneath the floor where they would keep the lions and then lift them up so that then they could attack people that, you know, were singled out in the stadium and people would cheer that on. I mean, to just say, well, they have to make the game safer is one thing, but I think it also requires us to examine our own bloodlust because that is part of what watching a game on Sunday is about. And it's foolish of us not to admit that it gives us a thrill, even as it horrifies us. I didn't want to just let this go. You're working on a story for the Journal News, which is in Westchester, New York, and about roller derby and a local league. And you tell them if, if a league ever opens up in the area, let me know. Or I guess it wasn't a local league yeah. at the time. And they... Uh, they started uh, a league in Yonkers and, and you take the, 
the name Leslie E. Visserate, obviously in honor <laughs> yes. of Leslie Visser. How does that exactly happen? I'd played sports all my life. I was a basketball player through college, not not in any formal. I played a lot of pickup and I played pickup mostly mostly with men. And so that kind of got me into being a sports writer and wanting to be a sports writer. And just because I loved the game so much myself, I played all the time. When I moved to New York, I joined the Prospect Park YMCA. They had pickup games there every noon. I would play all the time. Curiously enough, like two of the guys who were in the band Marcy's Playground played there as well. So wow. it was weird, weird coincidence. But yeah, so so that's kind of how I got into it. And then after I had kids, you know, I didn't really have the time to go play pickup games at night. I was playing in in Yorktown. There was a there's a men's league there, and so I just I played there with those guys. And then after I had my kids, you know, you did you don't get out as much and. You know, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. And so a couple of years went by and I was like, I really want a different, I want a new sport. Like I want to do something. And then I covered this roller derby bout and I was like, this is my next sport. Like this is what I want to do. Yeah. So I called Leslie Visser and I was like, hey, um, I want to have you as my name, but I want to do something with your name. I hope you're OK with it. And she was she was fine. And it was fantastic. I'd roller skated as a kid. And, you know, got some new roller skates and learned how to, you know, kind of equivalent of tackle people on roller skates. And it was like just completely energizing. I was also starting to cover the Jets at that time. And it was super helpful because, you know, I could figure out like, like, for example, gaps and momentum are two things that, you know, you have to learn when you're covering football but aren't necessarily intuitive, like how gaps develop in a, in a situation where everybody's moving and everything is fluid. And roller derby really helped me with that because even though everybody's going in the same direction as opposed to facing off against each other, it really helped me understand how, how you could use your momentum to, to widen gaps and to fit through places and to, you know, kind of ad- advance through a pack. So it ended up dovetailing nicely with what I was covering at that point. Um, and just the physicality of it, and the camaraderie of the women that I played with. I'm still friends with a lot of them. That is truly one of the most wonderfully weird things I've had on this podcast, which I just love. <laughs> um, you covered the, uh, you covered the New York Jets during some of the Rex Ryan reign of, I don't know, good or bad. I guess a little bit of mix. Is it when you have a coach who is that sort of outgoing and that kind of wacky, for lack of a better word, is it a gold mine or do you get? kind of tired of the antics you know is it just great every day you know something interesting is going to happen or is it like do you have to almost have a good bs reader to get through what's saying versus what's reality i mean i'm I'm not necessarily thinking that you know rex was um the best thing since sliced bread which i think mm-hmm. you know some people some people did think that um and he but he was he was very entertaining especially the first two seasons that he was with the jets uh, you know, showing up at a press conference dressed like his brother, wearing, you know, a, a wig and a, in a Browns shirt. Cause at his time, at that time, his brother was the defensive coordinator for the Browns. And, and it was, it was, uh, it was always interesting, but I, I kind of felt like there was an energy to that beat that was really fun to be a part of as it, as a writer, because it was always something, it was always something that people cared about. I and mean, when you're a writer, you want people to be interested in what you're covering. And people were interested in that, whether they were Jets fan or not, because he was making news. It was an issue, you know, with the alleged, <laughs> I don't even know how to say it, but, you know, when the, when he had to address whether or not he had a foot fetish and whether or not his wife was in a, was in a video and uh, all of that, it was great. I mean, 
sometimes you didn't necessarily, I don't necessarily want to be associated with that issue or writing it down a lot or writing about it or having to research into it. I was like, I hope nobody checks my browser history right now because this could be, (laughs) (laughs) but, but at the same time, it was, it was interesting. You know, it was, it was, there was a lot of liveness to it. And I, you know, and I remember because sometimes I would, I would head over to the giants and, and cover, I've covered some giants games and stuff. And, you know, when there's not a lot happening, when they're not a good team and there's not a lot happening and everybody's pretty buttoned down, it can be very, it can be very dull covering a team. Right. You know, there, there are people, I mean, I, it's, it's just true. And I think it, it, to me, having to keep up with the pace was fantastic. I really, I enjoyed that, that, that any moment, anything could happen, any story. Like when they, when they bring in, when they bring in Team Tebow, um, as a quarterback. So now you have Sanchez and Tebow. Are you, are you kind of like, ah, oh, are you, are you psyched? Are you like, oh, this is a great drama. You know, this is great narrative. This is great yes. stuff. Or are you thinking, oh crap, there's going to be a million reporters. It's going to be super annoying. Well, the, it's true that a lot more national reporters would show up to cover different stories, but they're only parachuting in for a couple of days. If you have the, you know, if you're in the locker room every single day, then you're able to kind of keep an eye on that story a lot more closely than other. And you know things about it that other people don't know too. Like, like that was a really awful situation for Mark Sanchez. He was not yeah. happy about that at all. And, you know, to see kind of up front, I mean, in one hand it's like, Oh, Tim Tebow's here. And, you know, he would get, I remember one day he got balloons sent to him and he didn't know who they were. They were just some anonymous fan had sent a balloon bouquet to the locker room and, you know, and he didn't know who they were. And, and, you know, and there's Mark Sanchez, just a couple of, of, uh, lockers down, you know, seeing the backup get a balloon bouquet. Um, and also just, you know, knowing that he's a better quarterback and it just completely sapped his confidence, completely sapped his confidence. I mean, cause, because you're like, what is management saying getting him in there? Debo. Right. And, uh, it was, you know, and, and so even though you have a lot more national reporters coming in every once in a while, you know, there's still, you're still there every day. You get to know those players better than anybody else. So when something does happen, you know who to ask about all of the different fires that are cropping up. Right. You have a story. It's pinned on the top of your Twitter and it's a, it's a really great piece. You wrote in 2016. It's called, um, remembering Joe McKnight, a man who deserved better than his death on hard asphalt. I just want to read a tiny bit here that I really thought was so good. Um, you wrote McKnight really wanted to be great. There was just a lot of in between where he was and where he wanted to go, but that endeared him to the people around him. He was funny and laid back and it was easy to relate to his own frustration with not being just a little bit better every day. If he couldn't be honest with you, he'd prefer not to talk at all. He'd hold a media blackout when he wasn't playing well or believe that his words were taken out of context by one of the writers. I'd always ask if today was the day he'd talk and he'd apologize and say it wasn't. It was, you wrote this really tender, kind of owed to McKnight, or for people who don't know, former USC and Jets running back who, who died tragically in 2016. What made you write it? Like, why an ode to, I mean, it was just Joe, I, I hate to say it sound callous, it wasn't Mark Sanchez, it wasn't Tim Tebow, it was Joe McKnight. Yeah, and and I I wasn't a huge fan of Joe McKnight as a player. Um, and I didn't think he was very good. He showed up that first day of rookie camp and vomited on the field. He was so out of shape. So that's a bad um, sign. It's a bad sign for a team. And he never really kind of, I mean, he had a few moments where he did some stuff and he ended up, he ended up being a good kind of kick returner, but he never really found his footing. And, and, and I actually, but personally, 
he was kind of fun to talk to. He would always say things he had no business saying to a reporter, which was kind of funny, right? Because he, you know, he would say things that like, if I printed everything that he said, first of all, it was, he was never in the middle of anything or, you know, enough for me to make it news. It would have just been exploitive. But he, he was just so unguarded. And I kind of liked him as a person, even though, you know, as a player, he just wasn't ever going to contribute much. So mm -hmm. there was, there was this, there was kind of a, you know, he was, he was not innocent of, as a human being necessarily, but there was this innocence about him, right? He always seemed kind of naive, kind of, you know, just kind of following along with whatever the path of least resistance was. And I, I was horrified by the way that he died, which was he was, he was shot in, um, by another driver in a road rage incident. And the man, Ronald Gasser, was not arrested at the time. And he was a white man and Joe McKnight was a, was a black man. And it just really kind of was heartbreaking that, you know, that, that this kind of good natured guy who messed up a lot was utterly cut down like that. And, right. you know, and a lot of players were upset about it too. And it was horrifying. It was horrifying because of the personal tragedy that represented for Joe McKnight, but it was also horrible because it represented an escalation, I thought anyway, of the mundane quality of death. Um, and so I was, I was really saddened by it. And, and yeah, and I, I pitched that and, and I, I pitched that to the undefeated, the undefeated, um, I don't think they changed many words in that either. And, and I, I really, I had a very good working relationship with the undefeated. And I, I have a lot of respect for the people who work on that site. And I love that they had the courage to run something like that, which is not a straight up sports story necessarily. Um, but it's, you know, and I, and also it was nice because I was, I kind of stepped out of that role of straight up reporter and, and there's a, there's a lot of opinion in there. It's we're not, not opinion, but, but maybe, you know, it's my voice for sure. And what do you mean by the mundane I, quality of death? Well, I just, I mean, I think that scenes like that where there's a, you know, where young men in particular are killed in anger and it happens on our streets all the time. And, you know, if he were not, first of all, if he weren't an NFL player and there hadn't been this outrage about the manner in which he died, I don't know that the, police department would have necessarily gone back and arrested the man who shot him. Right. I mean, you can't say with any certainty, but they made a judgment at the time that he didn't need to be arrested. So it speaks a lot to kind of the issues that Colin Kaepernick was talking about of the way that communities of color are treated by law enforcement. Yeah. You did a great job. Great job. A great piece. Thanks. Yeah. Well, Jane, I, uh, I appreciate you doing this very much. And, um, it's kind of weird that the first time we're talking is you're on a different <laughs> continent. It's interesting for me because I've had a little bit of distance now from, you know, sports writing. So thank you for caring, first of, of all, about what has happened with me and what I've been doing. But, um, but thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about it a little bit. I want to thank today's guest, Jane McManus, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Jane on Twitter at Jane Sports. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on iTunes and Google Play. And reviews are always appreciated and much needed. The music, again, is from the sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.